It is Locked on NBA, the Thursday sit-down edition. I'm David Locke, and our guest is ESPN's Kevin Pelton. He's such a brilliant mind. We'll talk about the variability of three-point shooting, long twos at the end of the game, value of defense. John Wall's return is his big piece on ESPN right now. All of those things coming up, plus rapid fire about the East and the West in the third segment of the show. That's all next on today's edition of Locked on NBA. You are Locked On the NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Let's take a quick look around what happened in the NBA last night. There were just four games. The marquee game was the Washington-Boston game. Went to OT, crazy finishes. Washington ends up with the 125-124 overtime, double overtime win and Boston, not any, be it a, any bit of a seeding problem for them. It was just a great basketball game. Lots of late game, took forever. Uh, but it does put Washington now just a game behind Cleveland for that fifth spot. Uh, Washington got 34 from Bradley Beal. They're waiting for the John Wall return. We'll talk about that coming up with Kevin Pelton. Elsewhere, Milwaukee, a bad loss in Orlando, 126-117. They allow 18 three-point shots, including seven from Jonathan Simmons and six from DJ Augustine, a problem for Milwaukee. We'll touch on that in this upcoming conversation with Kevin as well. Otto DeCumbo, 38 points, 10 rebounds, seven assists, and three steals in the loss. Milwaukee and Miami are tanking to play Toronto. I don't know if that's the case, but Miami lost a and slipped back into the 8th spot later in the night with an overtime loss to Sacramento, 123-119. And the Warriors looked a bit better against the Lakers. Lakers looked great as well, actually, in that one. Isaiah Thomas getting a lot of run in that game, looked a little bit more like himself. Julius Randle continues his fabulous play as the Lakers so improved in the second half of the season. KD carrying them without Steph, without Clay, and without Draymond Green. All right, that's a quick wrap on what happened last night. A bunch of games tonight, and as I mentioned, uh, coming up tomorrow on the show, we'll have uh, Adam Mattis and Anthony Irwin breaking down the nine-game schedule coming to you on the Thursday, a full, rare, full Thursday night of NBA basketball. Now, let's get to our guest. The return of the great Kevin Pelton. From one Kevin to another on the Thursday edition of Locked on NBA. An Arnovitz to a Pelton. How are you? I'm good. That was a good discussion with Arnovitz. It helped uh, keep me entertained on my drive back from Portland last weekend. Well, I'm glad because you probably listened to it with a very discerning ear. You are, I've decided, that you have become the buffer for my loud voice. <laughs> you know what I think of it is? I, I think of it as like someone needs to go, lock, settle down, settle down. And that's that's what I see myself doing. Okay. So that's your role. That's your Twitter role in life. <laughs> Okay, so what were your thoughts while listening to the Arnovitz on your drive back? What jumped out to you? I mean, I don't know. I had any settled down comments, but uh, uh, I thought the discussion of Houston's shot selection late in games, and specifically the Chris Paul shooting a lot more late long twos in that situation, was pretty interesting. But you highlighted kind of the optimiz- optimization issue, which is you know most of the time teams are trying to maximize their points per possession. But there are certain situations at the end of games where you need to maximize your chances of scoring rather than points per possession. But I I think that's pretty limited to really kind of the final possession for the most part. I mean, I, I don't know that the, uh, I don't know that the six versus seven thing really holds up. 
uh, if you look at wind probability. So the explanation I have for it is simply that it just becomes much more difficult to get a good shot late in games that your the average value of your possession is lower, and therefore a really effective long two-point shot does become a better choice relative to a contested three. All right, you, you slid one in there. So you're telling me win probability, seven my seven versus six point lead late does, is, doesn't show up? I haven't seen anything that it's, you know, that kind of disconnected where it jumps based on the number of possessions. I mean, you know, maybe if there's 30 seconds left, then it's a pretty substantial thing. But, you know, still the odds of you going, like, make three, stop, make three aren't that good anyway. So you're probably going to need to score, like, nine points if you're going to win that game anyway. All right, so you just led me into a conversation I was having with an NBA coach the other day. So Ricky Rubio, apologize for the jazz reference, but it's what I live in. So Ricky Rubio, who is arguably maybe one of the worst statistical shooters in the NBA over the last 30 years, in the final six seconds of a shot clock this year, I think he's shooting 33% from three. Mm -hmm. Is that an okay shot now? Because the final six seconds of the shot clock – the your average points per possession is getting pretty low. So if you get an unguarded Rubio late shot clock, final seven seconds, 33% from three, is that now a good shot? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that his uh, his shooting on threes is going to be better in those situations necessarily than it is overall, like sustainably. But, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the thing. Is there's always different parameters of it. You know, if it's the end of a shot clock, there's one second left on the clock. You know, you know, Daryl Morey is not going to be like, no, no, don't take that long two. We should take a three instead. Like, no, you got to get a shot up or else you're going to get a shot clock violation. And that's sort of the extreme end of this. But the question is always, what's the alternative cost? What am I giving up by taking the shot? So if I'm taking a long two early in the shot clock, then there's a pretty good chance that eventually I can get a high-quality three, a trip to the free-throw line, a shot at the rim later in the clock, if, especially if I'm the Rockets and I have James Harden and Chris Paul. But, you know, when you get down to it and you don't have enough time to reverse the ball or run another action, then, yeah, that, that changes the alternative cost significantly. And, and so that kind of a shot, I think, would be a good shot at the end of the shot clock. What is the – what is your late game numbers here that you're kind of referencing of how little or how hard it is to score late in games? Yeah, I mean, I haven't studied it a lot recently, and then maybe if someone wants to uh, submit a mailbag question to me on Twitter or uh, via PeltonMailbag at gmail.com, maybe at some point I can dive into this. But every time I have seen it studied, the points per possession, shooting percentages just get much lower at the end of games. And I'm assuming that the quality of the shot, now that we can look at that using the, the data that uh, ESPN has via second spectrum, I'm guessing that's going to be a lot lower too. You know, presumably just the defense is more locked in. You're not getting those easy scores either in transition or, you know, a loss of focus where somebody gets a cut for a layup on a weak side. You don't see those plays at the end of games. And that's part of why you see so much isolation is because again, that might yield a lower, a, a weaker shot than you'd get in the flow of the offense over the course of the game, but not necessarily at the end of a game. See, I always wonder this because I always have the numbers. Like Bradley Beal is 2 for 12 this year with the game on the line. Mm-hmm. 
you know, Jimmy Butler's 3 of 14. Kemba Walker's 2 of 13. So that's in the final 24 seconds within three. But what are they supposed to be? Like almost everybody in the league, of all the guys who've taken at least 10 shots in the final 24 seconds of a close game, and there aren't many of them. There's only eight, eight guys who've taken. Only C.J. McCollum has a field goal percentage above 33%. Yeah. I mean, you know, and part of that is probably true desperation situations. You, you know, you get the ball back down three with three seconds left. Like, obviously, your percentage can be very good. You don't have very much time to get up a shot. That's sort of thing. Uh, and, and that factors into it. But, yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to get a, a good shot against a defense that is really locked in. And I think you, you do see this to an extent in the playoffs as well, where the level of focus is greater than it is during the regular season. All right, you wrote an interesting piece today on the return of John Wall. And I I have my – I really have a great disdain for players who are high-volume users that are negative possession users. So below average on the use of an individual possession, they use a lot. John Wall is one of them. To me, it's not stunning at all that Washington played better without John Wall because offensively he's such a deterrent to their success uh, with his possession usage. I'm going to guess you don't agree completely with me on this. So what did you what did you find of why Washington played so well? And then let's get a little bit into your piece of where that's they can integrate that. Well, I think what was really interesting is, you know, you imagine you take out John Wall, who was second in the NBA in assists per game last season, and all of a sudden you're going to have fewer assists. But the Wizards didn't have fewer assists. They actually had way more assists. Their rate of assisted field goals was about average this season in games that Wall played. Since he went down, they've been assisting on nearly 70% of their field goals, which would be the highest rate in the league. So that's really fascinating is that, uh, they've sort of become kind of, you know, they're not using a triangle, but you, you think of those classic Phil Jackson offenses where they got a lot of assists from their power forward and their small forward, and you didn't get a lot from their point guard, but still it ended up being a lot because everybody was kind of chipping in. And that's sort of the kind of thing that's happening with the Wizards. And so do you buy that they are a fundamentally better team without John Wall? No, I mean, you know, the... The fact is, they're still, even with as well as they've played this stretch, he's still got the second best on court net rating on the team this season behind only Otto Porter. You know, if you look at the stretches where Beal was on the court without Wall, they're a little bit better than 500. You know, they're a little bit better than break even, which is really good for playing without John Wall, but still not as good as you're going to play with John Wall. The other guy that's causing me problems on this is Russell Westbrook's season. I can't wrap my head around. Like, would you say Russell Westbrook's having a good season or not? It's interesting because I think part of it is we're comparing it to his his MVP no, no, season. No, I'm actually comparing. I'm not. I'm just comparing. I'm comparing him to just a. I think he's having a terrible season. His efficiency is very low this year. Over the course of the year, I think it's been better over the last few months here because he started so poorly. I mean, he's the worst. Not in according to my use of possession metrics. Other than like Dennis Smith, Lonzo Ball, De'Aaron Fox, and a bunch of rookies who you'd never expect to be any good, he's the he's had the biggest negative impact on a team with his offensive possessions this year. And yet, when he goes off the court, the team is terrible. Right. Thus, I start 
right back where we were about 90 seconds ago when I said, I can't wrap my head around Russell Westbrook's season. Can you help me? Well, I mean, that's, that's where you get to the idea of when you ask other players to ramp up their usage rate because of the fact that your volume scoring star is not on the court, that they're typically going to be a lot less efficient. And what's interesting about the Thunder is, like, that made a lot of sense last year when Samaje Christian was his backup and, you know, they were sometimes playing Oladipo with that second unit, but sometimes not. And then you basically have no shot creators. But the whole point of training for Paul George and Carmelo Anthony is that you should still be able to score when those guys play and Russell Westbrook doesn't. And they haven't scored very well with those guys on the court and Westbrook off. Well, we also Which have, something, something about Mello. Right, I was going to say, Mello's having, equal, the only player who's almost having as bad an offensive year in my metrics than Russell is Carmelo, who would be the next non-rookie on the list. Are the Thunder good? I don't think so. But, I mean, it's interesting. What, what I can't wrap my head around is why they seem to play so well against the NBA's best teams. That's the interesting thing to me. Uh, but, you know, without Andre Robertson, defense, their defense has fallen off so much, and you haven't gotten the offensive benefit that you'd hope for taking Robertson out of the lineup because you're replacing him with, you know, guys who are also non-shooters, Josh Hustis, now Corey Brewer getting the start there. So I, I, without Robertson, they don't seem to be a very good team. Kevin Pelton of ESPN is with us, locked on NBA now daily, five days a week. Tomorrow, Anthony Irwin and Adam Matas will catch up on the few games we're played on this Thursday, plus big picture NBA items. And Monday, Josh Lloyd will be back with you with the biggest stories and the local experts here on the Locked On Podcast Network. All right, let's go to our next thing where you have to help me. This is the variance of three-point shooting. So let me go with the Jazz again. They're having a what I think has got to be somewhat of a historical 20-game run defensively. I can't imagine there have been a lot of teams in the NBA history that have been this good. And yeah. uh, teams are – do you know that, by the way? Do you have an, any data point on whether teams have gone 20 games at 94.5 or whatever absurd numbers they're at right now? No, I mean, it's tough because there's so many 20-game stretches within the team season. But, uh, you know, I think I would compare it. The other team I would compare it to is Detroit in 304 when they won the title after the trade deadline. They had a stretch like this. Uh, so you're saying that you think the Jazz could win the title? <laughs> I didn't say that. Oh, okay. But I'm sure some Jazz <laughs> fan out there heard that just like that. He just said they could win the title. Um, <laughs> some of this is that teams can't shoot the three against the Jazz right now. Like, they – it's ridiculous. In fact, in the last few games, I think opponents are, you know, about 25%. Um, when Jay Crowder is on the floor, for example, teams are shooting about 28% so far. Uh, 26.7 are what teams are shooting for three when Jay Crowder's on the floor since joining the Jazz. And you're going to tell me that Jay Crowder has no impact on that? I'm not going to tell you that Jay Crowder has no impact on that. What I am going to say, number one, is that teams don't have very much control over what happens once a three-point shot is taken. That, you know, the, the, the best three-point defense is to stop the three-pointer from being taken altogether. After that, teams don't, they do have some impact on it. And in fact, you find, you know, what I've found, because I've, I've put a lot of work into trying to predict opponent three-point percentage back when I was doing the uh, Cheney projection. And you find that the best way to do it is, you know, uh, a heavy dose of league average and then 
like a tiny bit. I think there maybe there was a tiny bit of how well they defended the three the year before, or maybe it's three point attempt rate, and then also how well they defend two pointers. So teams, if you defend, if you're better defending twos, you're probably forcing tougher threes, and therefore you probably you know, defend three is better. But there's there's no one that can sustainably do it at a rate much lower than League Africa. I, I'm going to argue with you on this one just for the sake of discussion and what I'm living right now, okay? When Rudy Gobert is on the floor, teams take 5% fewer shots in the restricted area. And they also don't get any corner threes. Right, so the numbers, right. the numbers when Gobert is on the floor, teams are sh- taking twenty five percent of their shots in the restricted area. The league average is thirty two percent, so seven percent of shots now have to go somewhere else. League average is seven percent of all shots are corner threes when Rudy's on the floor because the Jazz defense can get out now. That teams are taking half that. We now are at ten percent of shots have to move somewhere which is an unnatural movement in an offensive flow and means players are taking shots out of rhythm and in different places than they usually do. And that impacts shooting percentage is my claim here. I mean, that's all. it's correct that those impact shooting percentages. It's just a matter of how much they impact shooting percentages because we've seen the Jazz be this elite defending threes in the past. Um, I don't know. I have to look at it. I mean, so over the last 15 games, teams above the break three-point shooting against the Jazz is at 30%. The only team that's better than that is Indiana. And you're, and those are two of the best defensive teams. And you're going to say that over the last 15 games, those two teams are just getting lucky? I don't like the phrase just getting lucky. Again, with the Jazz, you'd expect your expectation would be that they would allow a lower percentage of three than the average team because of all those factors that you've explained. But I think there is some good fortune involved in the fact that they are holding teams that far below their average from three-point range. Indy, now, the, the, let, let's stay with Indiana and Utah. I was actually prepared for this. They're both holding teams out of the restricted area. Jazz are number one in the league at denying shots in the restricted area, and Indiana's number four. So that would back up my theory that you're moving shots in an unnatural fashion. Yeah, and again, I mean, it makes sense because if you're hold, you're probably, if you're doing that, you're holding teams to a lower two-point percentage and you're giving up a lower three allowed percentage because of the fact that you're not helping as much with the quality of you know, the, the defender you have in the paint. But, I mean, last year, if I'm looking at this correctly, the, you know, basically in the entire Gobert era, the Jazz have been no better than average defending three. Okay. Now let me go. I'm, I'm listening to you. I just am prepared for the next thing. Because the next thing to me is really interesting. Indiana's 26th in the league at denying the three-point shot. So they're allowing an awful lot, and they're allowing a lot of corner threes. They're, I don't think they're particularly – oh, they're okay, middle of the pack, defending, denying the corner three. The Jazz are allowing the fewest corner threes and are fourth in the league at denying the three. Does that mean the Jazz are getting less lucky than Indiana, another good defensive – like is Indiana getting particularly lucky that they're allowing the fifth most amount of shots to be threes in the NBA and at the same time have the best above-the-break defense, or is there something else going on there? It's not a, It does not seem to be a recipe for sustainable success on defense, what the Pacers are doing, at least, at least in terms of three-point defense. So what is your takeaway here – that I, if I were to play, run a defensive metric on 
money ball, restricted area plus three-point shots, the most important, like what I, really where shot placement is, is the key to good defense more than end result? Yes. I mean, I th- you know, they both matter because, you know, Portland is a team that more than almost anyone in the league in the last few years under Terry Stocks has done a good job of forcing opponents into kind of that ideal defensive shot distribution. But in past years, because of the fact that, you know, they just weren't contesting those shots well enough or, you know, were struggling in other areas, they still weren't particularly good defensively. This year, they sort of got the shot D to, to match that kind of, you know, uh, shot quality they're forcing on D. So it's not the only thing that matters, but it's, it is the more sustainable, particularly when you break it down into these smaller samples. Maintaining this conversation with a little bit of a twist and probably focusing a little bit on the on what's going on defensively for the Jazz right now. In the last 15 games, they are only allowing 57% of shots to be either restricted area or threes. And the league average is 65% of those shots. Is it sustainable yeah, to be 8 percentage points better than the rest of the league at that? I mean, definitely shot distribution is going to be less subject to random fluctuations during the season than, you know, shot defense quality. So I I don't know if they can stay quite that high, but uh, it's not unrealistic, I don't think. How how big a deal is holding teams to 56.7% of your field goal attempts being threes, or the restricted area compared to the league average, sixty-five percent. I mean, it's pretty good because you're basically forcing your opponent to, you know, make shots at a really high rate against you relative to where they're taking them to beat you. Like, there's two, there's two ways you can be good offensively. You can either get good shots or hit the shots you get at an above-average rate, and you've taken away one of those paths entirely. So now you're forcing teams to only go down that other path. If I were Oklahoma City, who's 29th in the league in this statistic in the last 15 games without Andre Robertson allowing almost 70% of the shots, or Milwaukee under Joe Prunty, who was supposedly going to fix this at 28th, how or the Houston Rockets, who are at 25th in this ranking, how concerned should I be? I mean, Houston's the interesting one because they've obviously got the most optimized offense in the league in terms of shot quality, and yet they haven't had as much success doing that at the defensive end of the court. Now, one thing our friend Ben Falk pointed out in a great piece last spring on cleaningtheglass.com was, in part, there's a trade-off between those two things, because when you play more traditional, bigger lineups like the Jazz start with, you tend to take more mid-range jumpers on offense but you also tend to ju- force more mid-range jumpers on on defense. This is sort of like the the San Antonio paradox of how are, you know the Spurs they understand everything. Why are they still playing this style where they don't take that many twos and shoot a lot of mid-range twos? Well, the reason it works is because of the fact that they're also forcing other teams to play that way on defense. So it's kind of hard to do both of them at the same time. But uh, I am surprised that Houston is as low in that stat as they are. Kevin Pelton is with us from ES. PN, by the way, he can get his piece on John Wall that we just talked about on Insider and some other great pieces. His mailbag's coming up. What Was it not on Insider? 
It, it is in front of the mail, the uh, paywall. Oh, uh, my bad. I pay for the paywall. I wouldn't know. Um, there, I just revealed my my paying sources right there. Uh, so the John Wall piece <laughs> is in front of the paywall. His mailbag's coming up as well. Uh, this is the Locked On Podcast Network. The let's move to the next uh, thing. What the hell's going to happen in each of these two conferences in the next five weeks or four weeks? <laughs> I don't know that I have a lot more insight there than anyone because, you know, these, these teams are so bunched up that it's not like you can pick out really obvious candidates for like, oh, this team's great and they should be much better. And, and you know, they're, they're all kind of in the middle with each other. I mean, Philly, maybe because of their schedule and their point differential, looks like a team that's got a chance to make a run in the East. But uh, beyond, beyond that, it's tough to say. All right, then I'm going specific questions for you here. Cleveland okay. will or will not have home court advantage for the playoffs? I mean, I think they probably will. I think it's probably more likely than not. The Indiana Pacers are going to have home field home court advantage for the playoffs. The win last night at Philly made it a lot likelier because Philly is probably the, the strongest competition for them, but I think they're probably a little less than 50-50. How in the heck is Indiana 40 and 28? I mean, you know, I've gotten asked this a couple of times, and I, I think their defense is probably a little better than you would expect, especially playing Bojan Bogdanovic as many minutes as they are. But really, it seems to primarily come down to the fact that Victor Oladipo went from being, you know, maybe an okay starting shooting guard to an all-NBA candidate. One player's – I mean, they're going to swing 30 – 25 wins to what their projections were, right? Uh, I don't think they're going to quite get there, are they? I don't know. Some people I mean, have them at 25, and they're going to yeah, be at 45. Yeah. yeah, it depends where you had them projected. I, I, let's see. I looked at RPM not long ago, and I think they were in at 32 wins with the final RPM projection. Do you think that any of that quagmire between three through eight can knock off Boston or Toronto before the conference finals? Uh, tell me who's healthy for the Celtics. Very legitimate. And also, if you're, you're taking Cleveland out of that. That's what I'm putting him in the quagmire. Man. I mean, it's tough because their defense is so bad, but yet, when they lock in, we have seen them play quite well. I, so, I, I mean, certainly if you're asking, can the answer is yes. Is there, any, is there anything Cleveland's done this year that makes you believe that they are a threat, or are we just based on past years and the fact that they're Cleveland? I mean, you know, that stretch in December was pretty good, even though it was against weak opposition. And... The fact is that Boston hasn't exactly run away from the pack in the Eastern Conference. So I, I think, to me, if I'm Cleveland, I would much, much rather be the three-seed than the four-seed. I, I understand that they don't care that much about seeding, but I would rather rather stay away from Toronto in the second round. Toronto's top five offense, top five defense uh, in the regular season. Does that carry over for uh, playoff success? I mean, I can't, don't have a specific... Uh, you know, statistic I can cite for you off the top of my head about that, but but balanced teams generally tend to be very good in the playoffs. The two teams in the Western Conference that will not make the playoffs are? I mean, if I have to answer today, I would probably say Denver and the Clippers. 
why are we all doubting the Clippers? They're like the sixth best. They're the seventh best offense all year. They're the sixth best offense in the NBA since they traded Blake Griffin. I mean, I think a lot of it is for you know the real answer to the question is, well, who's going to get hurt? And the Clippers do have a lot of injury-prone players, although some of, many of them are already hurt. So maybe maybe that takes that out of the equation. But uh, I, I think that's a, a big factor for them. My feeling is that Portland, Oklahoma City, and Minnesota are in. Do you agree? I mean, I don't think I don't think there's anyone who you can start making you know, your reservations for the playoffs at this point in the Western Conference because every team is in in injury. You know, in a player being unavailable away from, you know, falling on the right, wrong side of that line. Portland's t- four losses ahead of San Antonio, five ahead of Denver. They, Terry Stotts can make dinner reservations in Portland for the Friday before the playoffs because he's hosting on Saturday. <laughs> well, I haven't booked my hotel for that just yet. Don't you think? Portland's run, Portland separated themselves, haven't they? They're the they're the heavy favorites at this point to finish third. How has Portland won ten straight? This, you know, they they've improved their defense this year, as we talked about earlier. That came with kind of a trade off at the offensive end early in the season. You know, partially because I think they missed the shooting that Alan Crabb provided last year. Uh, then they had a stretch where they got better offensively, but the defense fell off. And now this is the first time all year where they've been able to really combine those two things in large measure due to the fact that Damian Lillard has basically been a supernova for a month here. Is it just as simple? I mean, are you, you went with the Oladipo theory for Indiana. Are you just go on the Lillard theory? I mean, you're this big numbers guy, and you're just going to give me the superstars carry of the day? Is this is this the theme of today's podcast? Yeah, I mean, over stretches like that, certainly they can. I mean, you know, Lillard is not playing as far ahead of expectations as Oladipo is. And, you know, part of it is that, you know, Portland's point differential is still not dramatically better than we've seen in the last couple of seasons. I don't think they're in a different stratosphere as a team. But, you know, if they keep playing like they have the last 10 games, then then they all. The Utah Jazz have won 19 of 21 their defense in that span compared to average is better than Houston or the Warriors' offense. Now, I don't know that the pendulum swings equally each direction. I don't know. Is it further harder to get further away from average defensively or offensively? Historically, it is generally harder to do it on, on uh, defense. There's usually a wider spread on offense than on defense at the team level, which is part of the reason that offense does seem to be slightly more important for individual, somewhat more important for individuals than defense. Okay, so the Utah Jazz have won 19 of 21, which to anybody who's paying attention should probably be stunning. In the last 14 games since they got rid of their two negative defenders in Rodney Hood and Joe Johnson, their defensive rating is a 94.1 for over 14 games. Can you put this into some sense that makes sense to people, and how legitimate are they? Well, the, the question that I sort of posed to myself earlier this week in the anticipation of this conversation was, you know, how are they defending so much better than the past? Because, you know, we've seen great stretches like this uh, the first year after the trade deadline, after the NS Cantor trade. You know, that was a great defensive stretch. But the Jazz haven't been the best defense in the league over a season. You know, they've been close, but they haven't been the best. 
And the thing that stood out to me, and it's interesting, it's actually receded a little bit during the stretch, but it's partially, partially I think, how they've survived without Gobert this season is that, you know, before it was all about the quality of their shot defense and then their defensive rebounding. And they almost forced no turnovers, you know, because of the fact that they were playing that more conservative style to try to force difficult shots, not gamble, that sort of thing. But then you go out and add Ricky Rubio uh, early in the season, Davo Cephalosha, Donovan Mitchell. Uh, Joe Ingles is pretty good at forcing turnovers. And now you've managed to get a team that is both in the top 10 in shot defense and in turnover, forcing opponent turnovers, which is relatively rare because of the fact that those two things you know, do kind of uh, compete with each other a little bit in terms of defensive priorities. Okay, wait, that's really interesting. You've got to elaborate on that because I think that's uh, counterintuitive to most people. Forcing turnovers and having a good deep shot defense do not usually correlate. Elaborate. Yeah, so I, I looked at teams in the top 10 in both of those categories in 2005. So uh, that's what... Uh, 13 seasons before this year. So there's 130 teams that are in the top 10 in, you know, one of those. And of those, it's about like a quarter basically that are in the top 10 in the other. Whereas you'd expect it just by random chance, it would be about 33%. You know, it'd be one out of three. So there is this slight case where teams that are better at defending the shot tend not to be as good at forcing turnovers Presumably because of the fact that, you know, at least at the, at least in terms of the coaching philosophy, if not actually on the court, coaches that prioritize shot defense want their teams taking fewer chances to force turnovers so that they don't get the defense out of position. Interesting. Do you think that the Jazz defense is good enough to be a playoff threat? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you defend like this for a stretch, even if there is some good fortune in terms of opponent shooting involved. I mean, you do this in a seven-game series, playoff series, you're probably going to win the series. As long as it's not along against the top two teams in the West, I guess. Uh, including if Kawhi Leonard returns, which of this quagmire of the West does Houston and Golden State not want to see? I feel like the, the Warriors are probably good on the Blazers after losing there twice this year, granted. Uh, without Steph Curry one of those times, uh, their, their most recent visit. But, you know, that's been kind of a difficult opponent for them because the Blazers can play their style and and beat them at it occasionally, at least in Portland. So, I mean, that's not really obviously a possibility in the first round and a likelihood in the first round because of the Blazers separating themselves. But that's the team I think I'd not want to face better than them. If I were Houston, I don't know. I don't don't have a strong feeling off the top of my head of what team really causes them problems. Taking the Warriors or the field? To win the championship or to win the West? Championship. I'll take the field at that point. I mean, I think, you know, first off, Houston has made it a little legitimate question in the West, and Toronto's playing well enough to, you know, be a formidable final, so if they get there... And then the other thing is, I mean, I think Steph Curry's ankle does have to be a concern, especially you know, as a team that only has, you know, one other point guard on the 15-man roster. You know, Quinn Cook has been starting for them with Curry out right now. He's at this point not eligible to play in the playoffs as a two-way player. So you'd be, you'd have Sean Livingston, and then otherwise you'd have Patrick McCaw running the point, I guess. 
Andre Gudala? Yeah, I mean, you might just play without a point guard, especially if you ramp up Iguodala's minutes, but uh, that, that would, that's a concern. You taking Toronto or the field in the East? I, I can sense that you're taking Toronto, given your feelings about the, the well, Cavaliers. I, I took Toronto at the beginning of the year to be the number one seed, and everyone laughed at me, so I'm not going to get off now. Like, I'd love to go. Like, I'm not one of these people who knows how to go research tweets back to me, but I got I got some people that I, I got some retweets I'd like to send back to them. <laughs> I bet you do. Uh, maybe even from me at that point. Uh, I, I think probably still the field, but it's it's close. Uh, just because this is personal. Who you got for coach of the year? Are you getting off your train or are you staying on your, your coach of the year pick? I don't want to commit to that on March, whatever, whatever the day this is. Who would you pick at the beginning of the year? I pick Quinn Snyder. Okay. I'll just see if you're, if you've got any mental fortitude. I don't care actually, but I just thought I'd give you a hard time. All right. I will talk to you soon. Thank you very much for your time. As always, you're fabulous. We appreciate you. At K Pelton on Twitter. Thank him. Follow him. Enjoy him. Thank you, sir. Always a pleasure, and uh, see you in Portland in a month.